Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Okay, welcome back to Roadcase, everybody. This is your host, Josh Rosenberg. I am so psyched to be here for this episode with Paul Batchers, the talent booker at Brooklyn Bowl, Philadelphia. Really psyched to have Paul here. I want to remind everybody that there's a number of different ways that you can get involved in the Roadcase community. Quick and easy way is to follow us on the socials. We're at Roadcase Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find out more information about Roadcase by visiting our website. We're www.roadcasepod.com. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us at info at roadcasepod.com with your questions, concerns, comments, even suggestions for guests. Another great way to help out Roadcase and to get involved in the Roadcase community, really do rely on the support of you amazing listeners, is to subscribe to Roadcase on your favorite listening platform. So if you're on Spotify, uh, there's a little box that says follow. Just click that. really helps out the show. If you're on Apple Podcasts, there's a check mark up in the upper right-hand corner. You can click that. And by doing so on both those platforms and other platforms, you'll get live updates as to when new episodes come into the world. Another great way to help support Roadcase is to rate and review this podcast really helps out Roadcase. I really appreciate it. If you can do this on Apple Podcasts, you just scroll up a little bit. You'll see a bunch of stars. Click on a bunch of those stars. You can write a review underneath there. Really helps out the show. Thanks so much. And on Spotify, just underneath that follow box I talked about, there's a little box with some stars. Just click on that. Super easy. Really helps out Roadcase. Thank you so much. So for this episode, I've got Paul Batcher on the show. Paul's really an extraordinary human. He is the talent, current talent buyer for Brooklyn Bowl Philadelphia. He was also in that same role at Brooklyn Bowl Williamsburg. Uh, Brooklyn Bowls are across the country in Philadelphia, Williamsburg, also in Las Vegas and in Nashville. Uh, they are run by the top dog, Pete Shapiro, whom I had on the show. Pete also runs the Capitol Theater. Uh, he had is a, is a promoter extraordinaire had Pete on the show to talk about his book, The Music Never Stops, which I really, really enjoyed reading. And I know that all of you out there would enjoy that as well. Uh, Paul is such a super interesting individual and all roads for Paul has led to this moment where he is at right now. Even early on, uh, his mother was in the performing arts. Uh, Paul was involved in music and performing very early on. He worked, he cold called, he wanted to be in this business. He cold called to get interviews, informational interviews, started working at a number of different venues, offering his services up as an intern for free, eventually started booking bands, sometimes three or four a night, also going around New York City for uh, every night, scouting out for talent, finding bands that he could bring to venues that people can enjoy. Uh, it just seems a really earnest and honest way of getting to where he is. Uh, he's really an inspiration. If you are uh, not, if you are a music fan, if you're interested in promoting, if you're interested in talent booking, all of those categories, Paul's got it all. This is a really interesting insight into what it takes to be a talent booker at one of the premier venues in this 
country. Just to give you a little timing perspective as well, this interview took place around mid-July. We talk a lot about shows coming back and shows being back. Uh, That said, I'm really psyched to have Paul on the show and so glad that you're all along for this ride. Thanks so much for listening and I want to send a special thank you to Paul Batcher for being on this episode of Roadcase. And here we go. Hey, Paul, thanks for being on Roadcase, man. Great to see you. Great to be here, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. I'm so, um, I'm so psyched to have you. I told you that I had the uh, I had Pete Shapiro, the supreme leader of all things Brooklyn Bowl, uh, uh, on the show to talk about his book. So I'm excited to have you. You are the talent buyer for Brooklyn Bowl Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Um, what do you do? What does talent buying mean? And how do you go about doing that yourself? Well, um, talent buying is a pretty broad term that we use to define um, finding and booking and securing national, international, local talent. Yeah. Um, be it live music or comedy or theater um, on a, a live stage in order to sell tickets and bring a live experience to whatever city we might be operating in. Um, so right now I'm actually living in Philadelphia, um, acting as the talent buyer for our new venue in Philadelphia, as well as Brooklyn Bowl in Williamsburg. Um, and so kind of splitting my time between the new markets, but yeah. based in Philadelphia. You're wearing two hats. How's that working out for you so far? It's pretty exciting. I, I cut my teeth in New York, so um, it's fun for me to experience a new market that's not too far from home. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to to get back and forth pretty easily while you know, spreading the, the legacy and, and the gospel of Brooklyn Bowl um, to a new city. So, yeah, yeah. So is... Um, is, you know, I was mostly prepared for like Brooklyn Bowl stuff. I didn't know that this was, this is interesting. So um, we can kind of look at both venues and what you're doing with those and the differences and contrasts, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and sort of the economies of scale as well, I guess we would talk about, but um, is, 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 are, are there, are there shows at Philly already? How long, is yeah, it, how long has it been? Around, how long has it been having shows there? Let's say that. We opened on November 4th of last year, mm-hmm. so um, coming up on a year in Philadelphia. Um, you know, a lot of that was throughout some of the dark days of the pandemic, which uh, had a huge impact on all music venues, oh, yeah. including ours. Yeah. Um, but coming into the spring and summer, um, as more people became vaccinated and boosted and um, vaccination requirements got relaxed, we started to see a relative return to normal. Um, in terms of ticket buyers and, and people attending shows. Um, and the Brooklyn Bowl brand uh, is pretty well known and, and celebrated on the East Coast. Yeah. So we have definitely been um, embraced uh, based on our history in New York. Totally. Um, and, and people are certainly familiar with the brand in Philadelphia. So that has made um, our entry into that marketplace a little more manageable. Uh-huh. But it's been a pretty wild year uh, for the industry in general. Uh, and opening a music venue um, during that time definitely came with its challenges, but we've seen that um, it's definitely um, something that's that, that's been celebrated here in Philadelphia, and, yeah. and we'll be here for a long time. Well, challenges from the sense of trying to 
um, build the venue, actually construct it during COVID or challenges in the sense of trying to get talent to come to um, to come to a venue in in the fall time frame of last year? Yeah, more so as it related to artists canceling shows, mm. uh, postponing tours um, and, you know, hoping to open in an atmosphere that was post pandemic uh, when, you know, as we've seen um, over the past year, that you know, it was still very much uh, right in the heat of it. Um, so all those shows have been, were, were, you know, shows that were scheduled for the fall or winter got pushed back to the spring. So yeah. a lot of those challenges that everyone dealt with, with constantly postponing and, and uh, taking shows off sales and, and having to reschedule them um, was kind of the storyline for a lot of talent buyers this year. Yeah, that must get extremely crazy. Like what's one like story that you have of just having to move things around where it just got completely bananas? <laughs> well, unfortunately, the nature of COVID, um, you know, it's not something that just because you test negative two weeks before um, means the show is going to play off, you know, right. because people were testing so regularly. Um, there were instances where um, a positive test came the day of or the night before a show. And despite everyone's best attempts to isolate and, and keep a touring bubble going, mm. inevitably there were cracks in the system and we were, we had to you know, postpone and, and cancel shows the night before or the morning of, yeah. uh, which is always a fire drill for a venue team to communicate to ticket buyers and uh, ensure that nobody shows up to the venue expecting to see a show that you know was canceled. So right. everything else kind of stops and that's your main focus to make sure that that's handled correctly and, and the message is communicated. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, we, we did a few of those. We got pretty used to it. Uh, yeah, right. Oh, fire drill again. <laughs> this is what we do. Um, What's yeah. uh, how difficult is it to refund uh, tickets to everybody? Are you what? What do you guys use at um, at at Brooklyn Bowl for ticketing? We use Ticket Web, mm -hmm. uh, which is um, a more flexible, efficient pro product for the clubs. Mm -hmm. Since we don't do reserved seating, we don't need a, a really complex ticketing system like Ticketmaster uh, because mostly all of our shows are just one price level. So oh, nice. Uh, we're pretty comfortable with TicketWeb, and it makes it very easy to send emails to ticket buyers to refund people immediately. Um, so we, we enjoy the, uh, the the flexibility of that ticketing yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we had to send constant communication to people, and you know, anytime a show is rescheduled, um, you, know, you can't force people to go to the new date. So people are always valid uh, or approved for refunds if we end up having to, to switch the date. Yeah, so I guess the the is the first point of a in the decision tree is is this a postponement or is this a cancellation? Exactly. Uh, there's plenty of shows where you've sold five or six hundred tickets, and when you postpone the show, um, even if you don't have a confirmed date, typically people are going to hang on to those tickets. Mm, um, yeah. There's not really a or we haven't seen sort of a mad dash to get a refund on a twenty five dollar ticket. We don't have you know very expensive tickets at right. the Bowl. Um, so most of the time people are just hanging on just say, okay, we'll see when the next date is. Right. Um, and so we retain, you know, at least 60, 70% of those tickets versus refunding everyone and starting from scratch, um, uh, with a date that might not be as attractive for people from the get go. Right. So, uh, anytime we find out that a show is not going to happen on the date we intended, 
there's always a conversation of can we come up with a rescheduled date right now so people you know feel secure knowing that you know a new date is already yeah, yeah. announced or can we at least go up with you know to be announced date uh, but ensure that we will find another opportunity for that show to happen this year or yeah. early next year yeah and then at last resort we're we're canceling the show and refunding and and when you um when you move when you postponed but don't know the date when that so you have like a 60 70 percent uh rate of holding those tickets at that point when you announce the new date do you generally allow people then to refund if they can't make that new date? Or is there like a deadline where you allow people to that, where, where you can't no longer refund? Uh, we always allow people to, to get a refund when we announce the new date. Oh, cool. Uh, we've experimented with a couple of different policies. Normally I believe it's 30, 30 days. We say, Hey, here's the new date. Uh -huh. If you'd like a refund, uh, let us know within 30 days. Oh, cool. Um, but in the heat of COVID, uh, we were being, pretty generous where you know anyone who was requesting a refund was pretty much being graded on all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um this kind of stuff, I mean, I, we're not going to get too into the logistical weeds, but it's interesting to hear from you. You know, you're right there. You got your, you know, you got your finger, you're driving the you're driving the train. Um when um have you seen a slowdown in cancellations? I've kind of seen a slowdown in cancellations just from what I see still happening though. You know, I mean, uh, I don't foresee that ending anytime soon. There's a virus out there. People are catching it. And, you know, maybe, you know, I, I guess that what I see is artists sort of like, you know, canceling a show depending on when the next show is. Um, yeah. Talk, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, there's definitely been a slowdown. Um, whether it's a result of not as much testing um, or... <laughs> yeah, right. It's, of, like, uh, it's funny how you know, when you don't a, test for COVID, no one has. It. <laughs> you're never positive. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, yeah, it's problems. You know, problems. Problem solved, the, Paul. <laughs> right. Um, but I think on the whole, uh, concert goers are are more accepting of the idea that you know you're going to be exposed to you know a variety of, of viruses out there or 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 variants um, mm -hmm. as as we progress through the years. Right. And that most people feel comfortable that. Uh, the vaccines and, and the boosters will prevent them from any yeah, uh, yeah. serious lasting damage. Yeah. And, you know, we definitely see uh, differences with an older audience or older artists mm. uh, where they are still very much testing regularly. And we are hearing, you know, cancellations um, from those demographics uh, that are more sensitive about being exposed or exposing their fans um, who might be more at risk. Um, are you requiring vaxes at, at your Brooklyn Bulls? uh like vax cards proof of vax we follow the the mandate of whatever city we're operating in so gotcha. at the moment in um philadelphia and new york there are no more um vaccine requirements mask mandates um, same you just follow you follow the same city deal with or mask state yeah. now if, if an artist requests it then we will implement that um if it's a requirement for an artist. Oh, interesting. So an artist can come in and say, we want everyone to wear masks and you'll, you'll put that word out. That's we're open to having that conversation. Um, and we've implemented you know, stricter, uh, procedures when an artist has asked us to you know, take it more seriously. Yeah. I've got, I, I went to a show when I saw Dawes, I think it was back in December at the Vic here. Um, <clears throat> I was up on the, the, on the rail in front and they had, a they had, um, you know, they just pasted 
printed signs that said, uh, you know, if you're in the front row, enjoy the show, but we'd appreciate it if you wear a mask if you're going to be up here. It kind of went from yeah. that to then no one's wearing masks. But that, that was reasonable and logical. Everyone's masked up in the crew and backstage, et cetera. So still, right? I mean, bands are still, everyone's still masking up artists, et cetera, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, interesting. Those are all really interesting, kind of logistical, what you're dealing with on a daily basis now. And um, wow, it's, an, it's a new time. Have we, hit a, have we hit the new normal yet? Where, where are we kind of at on that spectrum? Are we, back to, are we back to normal? Will we ever be back to normal? And what is the new, or what does the new normal look like for you? Um, I'm not sure we're back to the normal that I remember pre-pandemic, um, only because now that everyone is feeling more comfortable going out and going indoors. There has been sort of a deluge of, of artists who have decided to tour all at the same time. So there's oh, just a man, lot of, uh, just a lot of volume, uh, out there. So um, many conflicts from different. a fan perspective, as you well know. Exactly. And, uh, and now that we're, you know, operating in the midst of a, of a recession, uh, there's not as much money to go around for disposable income and, everyone is competing for the attention and money of, of that fan um, to attract them to your club and, and your show. And it's just a, a lot of more competition than I can ever remember. Um, Interesting. In the fall calendar and, and the summer festival calendar. Um, so that is, is still a consequence of the pandemic. I think when everyone was, was holding back on touring and now they've all kind of gone out at the same time. I know it's just, it's been, um, it's bananas. Good. I'm glad you say that because so, I, I now I know I'm not going crazy like with all the choices. I think that's it's definitely the the struggle is real for sure. Yeah, um, and you know I'm really excited about our fall calendar in both Brooklyn and Philadelphia, but I'm sure that all the other clubs are, have some really exciting shows as well. Mm -hmm. and, you know, in some places, if you're booking a certain genre, um, and there's the same exact genre of a bigger or similar or bigger artist, you know, that's, that's directly competing with, uh, the attention of that fan for your show. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so that's, a, that, that's still something that, uh, needs to kind of return to, uh, to normal. Mm -hmm. um, but we have seen that people are excited about going out to shows again, that artists are touring again. So in that sense, yes, the bands are back on the road. The fans are back in the building. Um, they're not requiring mass as much so the fan experience is, is returned to, to pre pandemic, uh, experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's all important because as much as, uh, you know, safety was the priority. I understand the fan perspective of not wanting to stand in a crowded building with a mask on for four hours. True. True. Yeah. I mean, live music is back. Uh, it's just the requirements to, to make that happen are continually evolving, but things are back. Um, how often do you see conflicts in, um, so when you book a band and then all of a sudden there's sort of a band in the same genre that's booked uh, in the same city, does that... Is, is a function of Brooklyn Bowl, and I, I want to get into the kind of talent that you look for to book in general, and what the ethos is of Brooklyn Bowls um, uh, in in general. But so it sort of begs the question: Do you ever get significant conflicts? And as a talent buyer, you're kind of like, 
oh damn we like we booked circles around the sun and then um i don't know j-rat which wouldn't happen but you know another jam band's playing in another venue does that happen uh, obviously it speaks to what types of venues are booking what right yeah how, how does that how do, uh, yeah is yeah. that frustrating for you well you, you do your best to predict um when certain bands are going to be in the market for instance fish is always at the garden on new year's eve um and Rook and Bowl is known as a as a home for for jam bands. Yeah. And so we, we do our best to try to avoid that kind of programming when we know that Fish is in the market and going to be commanding the attention of most of the jam band fans. Right. Um, and so we'll try to do something more indie rock or hip hop. Occasionally we, you know, we we do end up booking something jam centric, but maybe it's an older audience or something more dead focused. Um, yeah, a dark star orchestra. Maybe those people aren't going to fish. So right, um, you want to you're trying try, try to re- reignite the old de- the dead versus fish con. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, if fish is playing at yeah. the garden, just book a dead oriented. That solves your problem. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, there's just so much crossover. Yeah, 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 but, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it happens. You know, since we're booking shows so far out, sometimes a year in advance, uh, usually about six months. Uh, it's impossible to know who else is going to be in the market at that time. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. a lot of the time it's just getting lucky that um, uh, there's not a direct conflict on your date. Yeah. Um, Brooklyn Bowl benefits by having, um, by being kind of the home venue for specific genre programming. Mm-hmm. And so typically anything in the jam world is, uh, is heading to Brooklyn Bowl. Yeah. Um, and while, you know, they do play, other venues and certainly larger bands will play larger venues for our capacity. We're, we're always in the conversation and have the option or have an idea of when that band, what, what time period that band is targeting so that we know, all right, you know, we didn't get this show. We know that they confirmed at Brooklyn steel. So perhaps we don't try booking a similar genre on that exact date. Gotcha. Um, but thankfully New York's big enough where, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter as much as a city like Philadelphia where, you really want to be cautious not to book the same genre on top of another show. Yeah, yeah. What are the respective caps? Brooklyn is 850 sellable and Philadelphia is 900. Gotcha, gotcha. So with the Brooklyn one, obviously you're in um you work closely with the Cap Theater to make sure that there's no there no real conflicts there as well and that's kind of an easier task I would assume because you guys are all in sort of the, under the same umbrella. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and in addition, you know, we, we do a lot of, uh, a band will do two nights at the cap and one night at the bowl. J-Rad does that. Oh, cool. does that. Mo does that. Um, so in addition to having awareness of, of where bands are playing or targeting multi-night runs, uh, we also benefit from uh, kind of getting that New York city underplay in a lot of instances. How often does it happen when there's a jam band coming through the cap, but there's another jam band that happens to be touring and they're coming through Brooklyn or coming through the New York area and it's convenient for them to play. What happens then? We have a conversation with the cap. We just had one recently um, <laughs> and it was decided that, you know, although it's, a, it's the same genre, um, the cap being further up in the suburbs yeah, and yeah. usually attracting a bit of an older audience, um, and the band that we were targeting at kind of having a younger demo and being in New York City, mm. uh, it wasn't going to be the end of the world conflict. Maybe if it's a band that's looking at two nights in New York City, we would advise them just to do one and, and play it safe, um, which was which was the case in this instance as well. Interesting. So it's always an open conversation. And 
uh, knowledge is power. And we have gotten screwed with, um, with, with shows announcing after ours has been announced on the same date that, you know, fans found to be more attractive and, and has heard our show. Yeah. Um, yeah. But more often than not, there's, there's enough to go around. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, so since I just had, um, Pete Shapiro on the show, um, interview to be published, uh, beginning of August, we're talking here mid July, but you know, Pete is amazingly adept at and very creative at bringing different artists together, sometimes at the last minute, sit-ins or suggesting various levels of combinations of bands, et cetera, collaborations. Um, what does that look like from your perspective and how, what kind of challenges or, um, or positives does that, does that present for you? Um, that's totally correct. That he, uh, he, I mean, he's been in the industry so long and has so many relationships directly with these artists that he's not operating through the normal channels of calling the agent and, you know, trying to get a show on the tour. It's very much he's texting these artists directly, yeah. whether it's Questlove or John Popper or, uh, whoever mm. and able to plant seeds for ideas, for concepts, for themes, um, for fundraisers, um, that otherwise would take you know, a very formal process to, to pitch. And so, uh, the ease that he's able to put these things together is a function of, of his time in the industry and the relationships that he's built, um, for decades. And so the way that manifests itself in my world is kind of getting a last minute call in 48 hours saying, Hey, we're doing a secret J rad show, uh, on Friday. It goes on sale at 10 AM tomorrow. Wow. And I need you to, uh, you know, make it happen. And, and in that instance, again, everything kind of stops and, and, uh, you, you get the team together, marketing and ticketing and operations and making sure that you can execute, um, the agreement that he, that was already made. And, you know, our team is, is, is used to it at this point and we're able to, uh, you know, act pretty quickly on, on those last minute shows. Uh, we have one with Diplo recently where, uh, he was performing in a park and McCarran Park and they got shut down and, and the manager called us and asked if they could just come and move the party into Brooklyn Bowl on a night that we didn't have any sound staff or uh, any infrastructure prepared to run a show <laughs> security or anything like that. <laughs> and we were able to put out the bat signal yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and get staff in quickly enough. And that was the day of the show. So, wow. so we're very grateful that, that Pete has this legacy, um, and the ability to put together these amazing, um, shows just by, uh, word of mouth with the artists. Yeah. And we are always nimble enough to be able to execute, uh, on his grandest visions. Good. That's yeah. He's amazing. So on that note, what is it like to work under probably t today's most prolific and influential concert promoter? Mm. Uh, it's definitely an, an honor for me. I, I, I've, I grew up going to Brooklyn bowl as a fan from 2013, I was at the first J-Rad show as a fan and have known about Peter Shapiro and, and have been grateful for his work in reopening the Capitol Theater and, and Brooklyn Bowl and, uh, and, and all of his, uh, larger scale concerts fairly well I was at. Um, so it's always aligned with my vision for where I fit in in the industry. Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful to be working for his organization and, um, and to have regular communication with him. And for me, it's just, uh, as much I can, as I can get out of, uh, every conversation as possible. I, I try to, he talks so fast that sometimes it's hard to, 
uh, oh, to retain and respond to uh, <laughs> try 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 interviewing <laughs> him, dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so you know, um, but you know his instincts are so great when it when it comes to ticket pricing or day of the week or time of the year to do a show, um, and he's given me a lot of insight that can only come with you know with decades of experience. Uh, that I try to remind myself, even though it might not be an instinct for me that, you know, this is something that he's learned and I need to just accept that this is a truth that might not be logical on its face, but, you know, it has something that's been proven to him time and again. And, and, uh, you can't argue with the track record. And even though he has some really bold and, and sometimes wild ideas, for the most part, their, his instincts are correct. And, uh, it's pretty amazing to, to uh, be in that circle and, and to learn from someone like that. Yeah. Oh man. What an incredible position that you're in to be able to do that. He learned, was it Larry block that he worked with at, at wetlands? Was that, I want to say that's his name. Um, but when he first assumed the, uh, the ownership or part ownership uh, of, of wetlands, it had been already, um, uh, operating as a venue. And yeah, so, you know, Pete was in that position as well way early on and, talks about how important it was to have someone that was there to, for him to sort of learn from and, and, and way back. And if you, you know, I'm sure you're, you're, you're looking at the book, um, you know, music never stops and, um, um, yeah, just absolutely utterly amazing. <laughs> um, let's talk about your personal background. You come from a musical family or apparently your mom sort of pushed you in the direction of music early on. Can you talk about just sort of what brought you into the, to the, to your love of music and eventually into, um, your career in live events promotion? Yeah. Um, my mother, uh, was a musical theater major, a, a ballet dancer. She moved to New York with ambitions of becoming an actress and waited tables for De Niro and, and Pacino and had some <laughs> extra parts in Raging Bull and Saturday Night oh, Fever. No um, Wow. So she's always uh, been obsessed with show business uh, and got me started with classical piano as a kid, um, which grew into jazz piano and, and playing the drums and playing in rock bands and acapella groups and doing some music production. And uh, I've just always been in the circles of uh, orchestra and band and playing with rock bands and, and, and marching band. Um, so I've grown up uh, collaborating with people with in music and playing club shows as a rock band in high school and mm -hmm. going into the city. We, we played CBGBs when I was a kid, uh, in one of the, one of the last shows that they've had there. Um, oh, no kidding. So wait, you say, do you play it at CBGBs at one of the last shows? Yeah. Tell, my, tell my, me. I mean, we were in high school, mostly family and friends, uh, but we were able to get a slot. Um, <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm not sure how, but, uh, yeah, anytime I pass by the John Barbados there uh, in the exactly. barrier, I'm yeah. always like, yeah. <laughs> right. that used to be a different place. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know. I went to NYU cool and I live, the, my dorm was that dorm building right there on third, on right on third at ninth street. You may have noticed that uh -huh. there's an NYU building right there. That's a dorm. And I lived there when I was in grad school and that's when the CBG okay. was going off at the time. Yeah. So, you know, the, the legacy of music in New York, whether it's wetlands or CBGB's, uh, it's, it's fun to know the history, um, to feel like you're, 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 you're still a part of it. And, uh, when it came time for me to kind of decide which avenue I wanted to pursue in, in music industry, mm. I, I realized that I've spent a lot of time in the clubs. Um, and I loved the live experience more than you know, being in a studio or working for a record label. And, 
from there, I would just had to basically find opportunities to work for free because it's not, uh, you, you don't, you're not able to get a paid job without maybe a, a nice internship or something like that. So I had to, I had to kind of scrap my way through some of the smaller New York clubs before I started getting uh, the attention of, of larger promoters. Yeah. Tell me about the cold calling story. You cold called your way into getting a job initially. Well, I, I mean, I, I'd always thought that, uh, you know, the best way to, to, to get experience is to offer to work for free. So absolutely. Um, I just kind of, uh, lined up whatever mid-sized venues I could and, mm-hmm. and tried to get in touch with them as much, as much as possible. And, and offering my services, walking by, giving out resumes. Um, and there's, you know, so many clubs in New York City. And, you know, I didn't know the differences between Live Nation and Barry Presents or AEG at the time. So right. you know, I was calling everyone from the Beacon Theater to, uh, <laughs> you know, Web- Webster Hall, like having no idea that uh, they probably get uh, so many calls like that a day. And Saying um, what? Saying that you want to book for them or did you know what you wanted to do or you were just looking to just break in and just with an in, any kind of internship, foot in the door kind of thing? Of like, please just take me, let me do anything. Yeah, exactly. I, I wasn't picky. I you know, offered to hang posters, update ticket links, work production, work box office. Um, I just kind of wanted to wiggle my way in and then navigate from there. Right about what what um, time frame were you doing this, pounding the pavement in, in, in New York? This is 2015. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to get responses from pianos, which is a club in the Lower East side still there. Um, right. if you know, like Arlene's grocery and Rockwood music hall, it's kind of in that oh, little, Rockwood Lower music hall. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and then the cutting room, which is on 32nd street and park Avenue, which is also still there. Uh-huh. Um, and so both of them let me just kind of hang out and, and help update their website, work the box office for free. And eventually, um, started bringing shows into the room, um, bands that I had met from home in Connecticut, uh, that performed pretty well. And, um, and just, just by nature of being there all the time, you're just kind of the first person somebody thinks about if there's ever an opportunity or an opening. Well, how did you uh, so make that kind of being in the right place? Yeah, totally. Totally. Like right place, right time, but you got to be in the right place first for, to, for it to be your time eventually. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what, when did you make that junction? So you just, you, you sort of just in passing said like, Oh, and then I, I was, you know, booking a show, but that's a big deal. Like what, what did that look like? And how did you know that you could do that and, or wanted to do that? Well, a club like pianos, uh, they book five bands a night, you know, it's, uh, seven o'clock to 11 o'clock night mm. and there's bands every hour on the hour. Gotcha. And so it's just a giant machine of, of inventory and volume. Yeah. And so they're not too picky about the bands that they're booking as long <laughs> as you can bring, you know, 30 people. If every band brings 20 people and they're paying $10 for a ticket and having a beer in addition to their front bar business, that was enough uh, revenue coming into the club to be a successful night. So right. Um, you know, my boss at the time was always just saying that if you ever hear of any bands or, you know, no one, someone you want to throw on, it's not like I was booking a headlining show. It was one band of five that night, every night. Mm. And so I'd say, Hey, I I got a band from Connecticut. That's, you know, really cool. And if we book them on a Friday night, you know, I'm pretty sure 40 or 50 people will come from Connecticut or, or uh, in the surrounding area in New York. And we can give them the eight o'clock slot. They play 40 minutes. And then there's four other bands that night. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, then and the show did really well. Uh, I think it did like seventy or seventy-five people, and and then he just encouraged me to you know keep digging and, and keep finding other bands like that. Right. Um, and then I just started going out more. 
Interesting. Yeah. Listening. Yeah. How did you balance? What's that balance look like when you're a talent buyer too? I mean, now you're booking name bands, like you pretty much know every band that you're booking now, uh, probably have a pretty intimate knowledge of, the, of, of, their, of their catalog or music or what have you. What did it look like back then when you're trying to, you're not only booking at a, at a, at a venue, but you're also kind of jumping around the city, looking at the, just seeing, you know, um, a band play so that you just not, you're not booking someone and it ends up to be a dog. But, you know, I'm, obviously this begs the question, if you you just made the, the economic argument for it, if you're getting 20 or 30 people in the door, then that's cool. Um, but also sort of second part of this question is I would assume that it helps if the band's a good band and that you like it. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's definitely a, a balance between the economics and, and the enthusiasm for the music itself. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you have to, you know, tilt one way or the other. But uh, you know, the, the talent buying job is is really an office job for the most part of answering emails and mm -hmm. doing calendar management mm -hmm. and admin work. And then the A and R part of it, it, you know, begins at night, uh, going out and seeing shows and and seeing maybe the, is the support band have a huge crowd there for them? And do people know the words to all the support band's songs? And mm. that was something that I was taught, like, you know, keep an eye out on the support band because sure enough, they're going to be headlining, you know, the tour next time. Right. And I've seen right. it so many times. Um, yeah. And looking around the crowd but, to uh, see who knows if, if fans are singing the words, that's a good indication. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, you're encouraged to be a talent buyer and to be present for your own shows and to, you know, build rapport with the bands and their management uh, on site and, and to give personal attention to the show that you booked. But at the same time, you know, you, you can only learn new bands by going out and seeing shows and, and bands that you're not familiar with. So right. I would have to balance, you know, is this a, you know, is, is this a band that, you know, I, I need, I really want to build a relationship with or get to know their team versus, you know, there's other shows happening in the market tonight that, you know, I, I feel I benefit from being there and meeting their team. So typically you, you do a couple nights at the club for the shows that you thought were most important to be there for, and then kind of going out and exploring three or four nights a week. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it was definitely late nights and coming back from, you know, Bushwick or Ridgewood, uh, at 12 or 1am and I was living in Manhattan at the time, um, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays got, got pretty tiring. Yeah, uh, totally. Totally. But you know, I was pretty young and, and it was, it was just a blast at the time being able to say, Hey, I'm here representing the knitting factory or, pianos or the cutting room and you know, yeah. really enjoyed your set and here's my business card. And, uh, it was just fun. It made me feel like I was back in almost famous or, or some of the early rock right uh, yeah. decades and, and, you know, making relationships with artists directly. Um, because, you know, now when you're operating more in the, uh, in the agency world and, and you're getting avails from bands that are touring, you know, back then you could really just meet a band directly and say, Hey, let's put together your album release and let's find support bands you like, and let's make a poster together. And it was a much more personal experience, um, than just, you know, being, uh, than, than just being a part of an artist tour yeah, going yeah. You know, on a national tour. Yeah. It. Analogously speaking, you know, I fight the same battle. The struggle is real to get out there and see bands or make that decision. There's so many different choices, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, I'll, I, I frequently go to shows of bands that I that I love and want to personally see, but if there's a band that's going to be playing in Chicago that I know that I'm having on the show or know that I want to have, you know, I'm going to jump out and see that. Or like bands that I've had or artists that I've had on this show, I want to go and you know connect with them and touch base. So yeah, it's it's a dance for sure. I can relate totally, yeah. <laughs> totally. 
Um, but you, know, you, you definitely got to love it. You got to be moved by, by the experience of seeing a live show, yeah, which yeah. I always have been. And, you know, I, I'm able to just, you know, enjoy listening to someone's artwork on stage without needing to talk. And I have other friends that, you know, don't enjoy going to the concert because they just, they need constant conversation and they want to just talk to the person next to them. Uh, <laughs> but, uh. I've, but I've always uh, been able to just, you know, sit and listen for, for a long time. And then in between bands, you, you, you say hi and it's, it helps when you, feel like you're there in a professional capacity and you're not just, uh, you know, trying to make friends or something on a, on a Tuesday night. I, I, I felt that I had a, a mission and a sense of purpose being at these clubs, even though I didn't know anyone, uh, in that I was, you know, helping my career by being there. Absolutely. No, I totally relate to that. And I also relate to, uh, the struggle with, uh, with show talkers as well. People that are just like, <laughs> I mean, it's not a cocktail party. It's a live music show. I understand that everyone goes to a show for different reasons and, you know, I'm guilty of it from time to time, but I, you know, um, cause I like to socialize, but like, I'll take it out to the bar, just like wait and catch up afterwards, you know, something like that. I, 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 yeah. I, res I respect that you are quite aware of that situation. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I don't admonish anyone. No, um, no, I don't do that at talking, all. Like but, everyone's going to yeah. do their thing, but it can be frustrating, right? Sure. <laughs> um, Ticketmaster, you worked at Ticketmaster. When did that happen? So that was pre uh, getting started with um, with the clubs. Uh -huh. I, I worked for Ticketmaster for a year um, in their retail uh, sales division. So I don't know if you remember when you used to be able to buy tickets for on sales at the mall at like guest services and they would have the Ticketmaster seating chart up there and you could choose your seats and they would print out your tickets right there. And oh, yeah. this was really uh, kind of pre-personal computer and uh, people would line up for fish shows at the Dick's Sporting Goods where they had a you know, Ticketmaster machine and a rep there to help. Oh, you know, I, sort your I remember well, brother. I remember well. <laughs> so, I, you know, this is not a way I ever bought tickets, um, but I was responsible for... Um, kind of training and uh, distributing marketing materials for the Northeast region of those uh, retail sales outlets. Interesting. How and many of those outlets are there still? I don't know. Well, not they, still, they but at the time, up. at the time yeah. when you were working there, what, what was that? What did that look like? At the time there were a few hundred from, you know, record stores to sporting goods stores. Mostly they were mall guest services uh, counters. Uh huh. Um, but not surprisingly, they eliminated our division and they took us, you know, it was a road job. So I was, you know, out in hotels three weeks out of the month yeah. in Boston and DC and, right. and uh, Philadelphia and, you know, training uh, their staff on, on how to, uh, how to deal with guests and how to read a seating chart and how to print out tickets and reload the ticket stock. Wow. Um, so that was a short stint in, uh, <laughs> yeah, that would, uh, that would, in, in the music industry, but you know, it, it did give me a, a live nation email address yeah. and, it allowed me to start, uh, you know, reaching out to some of the talent. But I always knew that I wanted to get into the booking side of, of the industry eventually. So mm -hmm. taking the Ticketmaster job, I, I felt would help that. Um, and not that it did anything directly for me, but, you know, I, I was able to meet um, some pretty well-known promoters like Wayne Goldberg or Steve Gaber, uh, who took meetings with me, not in any professional capacity, but just, um, you know, they, they recognize my name when I reach out to them years later mm -hmm. uh, and cool. remind them that, you know, you, that you, you sat down with me when I was just a kid at Ticketmaster. Yeah. Where do you stand on Ticketmaster today in terms of like the thing that annoys me the most is kind of that, the verified reselling or platinum seats that they, that, that, that Ticketmaster will resell. What's, what's your view on all that? 
Um, I mean, we don't work with Ticketmaster at, at Brooklyn Bowl, right. so I don't have any direct experience. Okay, outside with it. of your professional uh, capacity with Brooklyn Bowl, uh, talking to Paul uh-huh. Batcher, what does Paul Batcher think of all that stuff? Um, and t- like for the ver- verified resale, I think that as we've seen that on secondary marketplaces, the you know the ticket prices get pretty astronomical already, and that. In many of the deals that I've seen, uh, other venues with Ticketmaster using that that money is getting put back into the gross for the show deal and typically being shared with the artist in some capacity mm-hmm. versus somebody buying a ticket and reselling it themselves and taking all the profit. So uh, I do understand that you know there's there's uh, there's some you know, displeasure with Ticketmaster taking uh, allotments immediately out of the general public and putting them on there, knowing that people are going to try to resell them immediately anyway, and, right. and having them and the artist both benefit from that assumption. Um, and so I think it's, I, I think I get that logic. Yeah. It's and, kind of two sides of the same coin, right? I mean, they know the things that people are going to buy tickets and sell them on StubHub, So they're taking their, they own tickets that don't sell immediately and anticipating what that, what that StubHub price is going to be. It's a little frustrating yeah. um, when you go into like Chicago theater. I don't know. I was looking at father John Misty and there's tickets for like, you know, $200 that's Ticketmaster is selling. So those were actual real tickets that likely went on sale at that time. Um, they're not the verified fan resell because they also, as you know, you know, provide the opportunity for fans to resell back to Ticketmaster and, and share in those profits, I guess. But um, you know, it's two sides of the coin. Uh, on the one hand, if those pri- if those tickets were still priced at whatever it was seventy five dollars, they'd be gone, right? Mm-hmm. So, yep. I guess looking at it from if if it is indeed correct that the artist and the venue does um, make a part of that larger profit, then um, so be it, I guess, right? Um, if those tickets are yeah. still available, you know, my concern is always that the money's not going to the artist and it's going right back into Ticketmaster, but, and they're, they're, they're enjoying the profits that the secondary market has, um, has created the market for. I think Ticketmaster has definitely taken a lot of, uh, public heat for, uh, acting as, as the devil and, and, you know, taking all the profits when in fact a lot of it is often shared with the artist mm-hmm. and, and the artist just doesn't want to get that blood on their hands, so to speak. Yeah. 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 Well, it's a good perspective to have. I'm sure that was a great experience. And obviously, you know, you talked about having made so many different, different connections, um, in that regard. Um, when I was reading some of the materials that you sent over, you talked about that, uh, you are a proactive, a passionate and proactive promoter of live events, quote unquote. What does it mean to be a proactive (laughs) promoter? Um, and I'm not trying to put it you on the spot. That, I'm actually like oh, literally no, no, no. wondering, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. what does that mean? <laughs> no, what, what I've always taken it to mean is that, you know, I, I've worked for clubs that that were not always the first option for uh, touring artists. Oh, interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Pianos are more so like the knitting factory, uh, the small room at City Winery. You know, there's other rooms in every market that get the call first, whether it's Tara Graham Ballroom in L.A. or... Uh, the uh or brooklyn steel in new york i mean there's a lot of venues where you're not exactly fighting for shows but the artists are are desperate and and want to play your venue more than anyone else right there's a there's a hierarchy of demand when it comes through to the the rooms that artists want to play there's historic and legendary rooms in every market and yeah there you know bands want to say that they've played the troubadour or they've played bowery ballroom yeah and 
those those rooms have a harder time of managing their calendar because of all the the uh, the incoming traffic that wants to play at those rooms. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like nine thirty club in DC, they have to do two shows a night because there's so much demand yeah. uh, to play that room. Um, whereas some of the clubs that I've booked in my career have not been in the top three of, of where anyone's wanted to play. And thus I've had to be more aggressive in trying to attract artists to the room, whether it's bringing in agents for a walkthrough or overpaying for shows or uh, coming up with uh, themed or concept programming on my own. I started a, uh, a comedy show with some writers from SNL at knitting factory uh, to try to generate um, revenue in our front bar on off nights. Um, we just did an album release with a local band here in Philadelphia called snack time that, you know, there's not a touring show. We're not picking up the phone from an agent, right. but it's a band that I have, you know, come across here in Philadelphia and, and felt really passionate about and, and, and convinced them that we should do an album release show at Brooklyn bowl. And, and it just did 750 tickets uh, in the dead of summer, which is wow. pretty Congra- remarkable. Congrats, man. That's cool. Band. So, so, lo- you know, so, so creating your own programming is kind of uh, part of the proactive promoter side of things. And, you know, w- once you get to a level where you're, you're dealing mostly with touring acts, it's a lot of, you know, picking up the phone and the band saying, this is when we're coming into town and this is when the date we'd like to play. And do you have the date? And, you know, oftentimes we do, sometimes we don't, but at the end of the day, I didn't do too much to, you know, create that opportunity. And so it's oftentimes more gratifying when, uh, you work with an artist directly or you come up with a concept, um, and it's actually successful because you know that it, it wouldn't have happened without you. You're not just a guy who picked up the phone. You know I mean? Yeah. So how grateful are you that you work for Brooklyn Bowls, um, and they have that legacy that you're not, uh, do you find yourself not necessarily having to be as proactive as you once were because of the, like you said, the legacy of where you work? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I've always wanted to be a non-proactive promoter. You know, I've, I've wanted the phone to ring. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I, I've always wanted to work for a club that's super in demand. Um, yeah. And that's definitely where I am now. Um, yeah. Brooklyn Bowl is, you know, a lot of people's number one place they want to play. Um, and we do have plenty of issues in, in, you know, having enough dates to go around or attractive dates yeah. for bands that want to play the room. And, and it's definitely um, a privilege to, to be able to run the calendar for a venue like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes less pressure off of me to, you know, fill a Monday night with a four band bill um, uh, in a market that I haven't been in for too long. You know, Brooklyn Bowl is, is a much bigger operation and, and you're not doing kind of uh, the, the five band bills that Pianos was doing. Where, right, you know, right. You're grateful to for for where you are right now. You're in an yeah, you're in an amazing position, man. But I definitely don't think I would have gotten here without um, without uh, the experience that I had on on those lower levels. And certainly, Pete and anyone who works for Brooklyn Bowl understands that you know being a promoter is uh, being a promoter is is sometimes different than being a talent buyer. Um, talent buying, you know, you're you're managing the calendar and assessing an act's value and predicting how many tickets you think you can sell and um, trying to be uh, smart with ticket prices and, and how you can cover the guarantee and the expenses on the show. And, uh, you know, when you're a promoter and you're actually risking your own money and, and putting your own money into marketing, um, 
that just comes with a and renting a venue. You know, that's that's kind of the way that things used to be before uh, promoters own their own venues. Right. And uh, it's sort of changed the nature of of promoting and talent buying. Yeah, I mean, you're so in lockstep with 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 Pete on on I'm sure the entire calendar. But are, is there ever a situation where you think that there's a band that you want to book or wants to book that, and you know, Pete's kind of making an argument um, for sort of some a, a level of downside. I don't want to say like, you know, I'm, I know you guys book amazing acts, but what does that push and pull look like sometimes from your perspective? Honestly, or Pete, is there any push uh, and pull? <laughs> it's probably no, a better question. Really, it's really not. Yeah, yeah, Pete yeah. tells us to, to trust our instincts. Um, and, you know, if we have a good feeling about something and we see that, you know, like I said, that, that act uh, in Philadelphia that I could tell, you know, had a lot of buzz about them and they were playing the halftime game at the Sixers show and they were doing free block parties and, you know, hundreds of people were showing up. Yeah. Um, and people are singing yeah. the songs. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's nothing that's telling you that, you know, this band can sell 700 tickets at $20 a ticket when they're playing so much in the market. But uh, my gut was was telling me that, you know, it's something that we needed to be involved with, whether yeah. or not it was financially successful. And if you're making decisions based on logic like that, Pete is always going to say. And what was the outcome? So it was a wildly financially and just professionally and, and personally successful night. It was mm -hmm. one of the one of the highlights of my time here. <laughs> right on, man. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, check them out. Snack time. Snack time, everybody, from from Philadelphia. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm going to check yeah. them out. I'm going to check them out. Um, what about booking other types of events, not just music? I know Pete talked about, like, the School of Rock um, or what is it, the rock and roll, something for for kids and, you know, exposing kids to jam band music, you know, Grateful Dead tunes, et cetera. What does that look like from your perspective, and how big of a part does that play in what you do? Yeah, the, the nature of Brook and Bull's business is, um, you know, you have the bowling, you have the restaurant, you have private events, you have concerts. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like a four wall concert venue where you're only opening because it, an act is touring and, and you're putting on a show. You need to have programming in there most nights a week yeah. uh, or as much as you can, mm -hmm. because uh, as long as you have kind of entertainment there, people will still interact with the space and go bowling or have dinner. Uh, and it's more of a full encompassing experience versus just, I'm going to go to a show for two hours and have a beer and, and then go somewhere else. Right. Uh, so that requires you to, you know, do more creative programming, matinee kids programming. Like you mentioned, the rock and roll playhouse is, um, one of the Dayglow family brands that has expanded to so many markets across the country. And yeah. it, you know, makes Brooklyn Bowl accessible to uh, an all ages audience and, you know, we like to start them young to get into, uh, you know, the scene that we're promoting. Totally. And, you know, I wish that my kids were younger that I could take advantage of that again, you know? Yeah. Well, they're never too young, man. Bring them through. No, I got 25, <laughs> 20 and 17, dude. We're talking, you know, like, you know, well, then they could just come to our regular shows. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's what we do. That's what we do, yeah. man. Um, so, you know, um, you were, um, you're reflecting on that and, and booking that. Yeah. So, so we're happy that, um, you know, the business allows us to to get creative with programming there. Mm -hmm. uh, we do the Rock and Roll Playhouse um, just about every other week in New York. Right. Um, and we do it in Philadelphia as well about once a month. Um, you know, we do plenty of children's recital showcases, mm -hmm. uh, fundraiser bowling events. Um, yeah, we do little cabaret stuff. So 
anything that we can get people into the room where they're utilizing, you know, the other offerings yeah, yeah. is, is a goal of ours. selling food yeah. and, and stuff. That's, it's always, it's always a, a sub goal there. I'm sure. Okay. Who's, um, exactly, who's, yeah. who's the best bowler on your staff? I think the, the dirty secret about us is that like, we're all pretty terrible shitty bowlers. bowlers. <laughs> I don't think it's a dirty secret. We, we all knew, we all knew you guys sucked. We, we don't get out there too much. <laughs> Has um, anyone ever come into either the Brooklyn or Philadelphia and bowled like a perfect game that's verified or what's, what's the highest score that like an amateur is just coming thrown. Some of the, some of the bands are, are pretty damn good. The snack time guys were, I think, like hit all strikes except for two spares. Oh like, shit! They, they were le- they were legit. That's definitely like up in like, mid twos. De- yeah, definitely over two. Yeah. Uh, so that's always pretty exciting, and everyone always assumes that we can we can you know hang there, but uh, <laughs> typically we're just we're just going to get. I was not assuming. That's why I formed it in <laughs> question format. <man. laughs> all right. Uh, so now that you're involved with Philly, major differences between talent booking in those cities, vibe of the fans that show up, et cetera, anything notable? Well, on the whole, like New York is one of the most, uh, successful, um, markets for selling tickets in the country. Yeah. You know, the major markets, New York, Chicago, LA, Denver, um, and Philadelphia is just not in the same category. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to, uh, you know, assessing an art, an artist value, um, an artist that's playing Webster hall or Brooklyn steel, might be playing a 500 cap room in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be mindful that um, just because there's huge buzz about an act in New York doesn't mean that it's going to translate into ticket sales in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we benefit from that in that, you know, a lot of bands that are too big for us in New York and that, you know, they're, they're selling more than 850 tickets regularly will play the Brooklyn Bowl in Philadelphia because they don't sell as many tickets there. So we're able to work with uh, another caliber of artist. Uh, in the market because it, it is just a tougher market to sell tickets, which mm-hmm. helps expose different artists and agents and managers to the Brooklyn Bowl brand who hadn't had any experience with us beforehand in any of our other markets. So right. it's been a super successful uh, experience of of getting of expanding the offering and, and the genre programming in markets like Vegas and Nashville and Philadelphia mm-hmm. um, outside of our typical you know, jam band and, and improvisational rock offerings to do more country and hip hop and indie rock. Um, in in some of these other markets where, you know, there's not as many venues and there's not uh, a dedicated place for those shows to play off the way that they are in New York. Right. Uh, so it's definitely harder to sell tickets, but, uh, it's, it's fun to see the diversity of artists that we're attracting. Interesting. In so now that you're talent buyer for at both locations, um, will that be the case going forward? Well, I have a, uh, our director of booking is Lucas Sachs, who is, uh, out of New York. So he's on the ground in New York, uh, running the day to day at, at Brooklyn Bowl in Williamsburg. Uh-huh. And I am, uh, in, here in Philadelphia. We're both, uh, working together, booking both rooms, but he is really the man on the ground in, in New York, whereas I'm based in Philly. And I foresee us, you know, keeping this relationship uh, going for a while. I mean, we could definitely use some some extra help as we get into uh, the fall and the, uh, and the spring. But right. for now, it's been uh, we've been working together for for a while now, and, and we're in a nice rhythm. Yeah, um, and we you know communicate four or five times a day. So. And 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 when it's an act that when when it's an an artist or band that is um, really. Um, 
sort of uh, vibes with the Brooklyn Bowl vibe, for for lack of a better terminology. But um, is, is it always on the table? Like, okay, if they're they're going south, they play New York first, or or vice versa. Is it always sort of like, okay, we'll play. You know, you want to show up at Brooklyn? Uh, do want to do Philly also, or or vice versa? Absolutely, yeah. We we want to make it easy for artists to to confirm and Nashville and Vegas markets. for for that matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, anytime we think it makes sense for multiple markets, we, you know, include all those buyers on the thread and, and try to, you know, show them opportunities to hit all three. Certainly New York and Philly can do back to back. Yeah. So we'll always try to entice an artist to say, you know, let's make it easy for you. You don't have to do any, you can hit two markets back to back right now. They're both good days of the week. We'll give you a strong offer for each one. Right on. You're getting the same, you know, book and ball experience in both places that you know and love. So a lot of it is just making it as easy as artists for artists as possible to, to confirm in, in multiple markets. Right on, right on. That's awesome. So as a, um, as we wind down, uh, so you're listening to snack time. What are you listening to it? What else are you listening to right now? Um, I spent a lot of time in Latin America and, uh, recently or just overall, overall, uh-huh. um, in Mexico and Brazil and cool. Argentina. Uh, and, uh, I'm a huge fan of, uh, this, this band out of Cuba called Sima funk. Sema um, funk, so, like yeah, funk. Uh huh. They're like a, a Cuban James Brown. Um, <laughs> wow, is is kind of how they do it. Awesome. Um, and this, the live show is just uh, totally wild, uh, outstanding. Um, have highly you, recommend. Have you brought them out? Yeah, we we brought them to Philly in New York in April, um, and it was just such a party. Um, I'm, I'm such a big fan. And you know, most of the sh- songs are in Spanish, um, but the the music and energy transcends. Yeah, the language, totally. Is, totally. Uh, it's almost, almost pretty, cooler. Yeah. Like it totally adds to that oh, experience. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, tomorrow we have uh, war paint in Philly. Right on. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had Jenny Lee. On, I had Jenny Lee on the show for any war paint fans out there. Go oh. back and listen to that interview. So that new record is, uh, is really great. Yeah. I like uh, it a lot. I'm a huge fan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we have Yola coming up in September. Yeah, uh, who's been setting the world on fire? Totally, um, I love that record. Um, and what else? You know, I'm I'm the Philly uh, scene here is like it's soul, it's funk, it's R and B. Yeah. Um. So I, I've definitely been seeing a lot of that local music around town. Yeah, I've kind of embraced my old style. Now that I've come to a new market. I've had to re-dive into the local scene that I don't know as well because, you know, plenty of artists are asking me to book local support for their shows and I don't have any junior here and I'm not from Philadelphia. So I've had to really make up for lost time and getting to know the local artist scene and going out to the smaller clubs the way that I used to do. Oh, that's uh, gotta be fun. Factory. It is fun. Yeah. 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 Uh, Interesting. And now that I'm working for a larger venue, you know, people are really attracted to the idea of potentially opening for some of these national bands at a thousand cap room in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, and so the, the Brookable name def- definitely carries some weight and it's just been great to, to <laughs> You're getting see the local well. scene here. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, people are excited to, to invite me out to their shows. Yeah, I'm, for I'm sure. I'm getting to go to like house parties and restaurants and not your typical ticketed clubs. Uh-huh. And, Getting to see uh, the quality of the of the live music scene in, here in Philadelphia has definitely been one of the most impressive seeing, things I've seen here. I mean, in New York, it was a lot of like DIY indie rock uh, punk bands, um, and that fit really well with the Knitting Factory. But at Brooklyn Bowl, it definitely attracts kind of this the soul, the funk, jam, yeah, jazz, yeah. New Orleans vibe, and Philly has that in spades. 
And so it's been a perfect harmony with bands like Snack Time and Omar's Hat and Tuck Ryan. And uh, there's just some really incredible bands here that, that are, are touring with artists like Lauren Hill and Jill Scott and Jasmine Sullivan. A lot of these famous national artists are comprised of uh, uh, their bands are comprised of uh, local Philly musicians who have their own projects and bands here that I'm kind of seeing regularly um, and kind of trying to get them uh, on in support opportunities here at the bowl. So most of the music that I'm hearing these days has been out at those smaller clubs and, um, and, and, and getting to know the local scene here in Philly and, and, you know, it's much more manageable to dive in here than a place like New York where, you know, there's so many different genres and, and places to see music that it's hard to get your head around. But here it's, uh, if you're working in the soul funk jazz world, there's like just a handful of places where everyone is hanging out and you see the same people over and over and, and they're all supremely talented and they're all, you know, playing Pitchfork Fest or uh, Bonnaroo or, or what have you. Um, you know, not as a headlining artist, but as the guitar player or as the drummer. Right. And then they come back to Philly and, and you know, that quality of music uh, is here in Philadelphia. And because you know, it's a more affordable city to live in, you can be creative and, and work as a full-time musician and still, you know, and, and still afford to, to live in the city. Um, yeah. And so you can feel that you know, in Philadelphia that there's a huge creative spirit. There's a huge pride to it, uh, to being a Philly musician. And, um, you know, I'm really happy to, to be welcoming those artists to Brooklyn Bowl and to be embracing uh, a new city that, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of love for New York. Uh, but we're trying to show that, you know, just because the name says Brooklyn Bowl out front, you know, we're, we're still a place that uh, recognizes the, uh, you know, the importance of the Philly music scene and is trying to showcase those artists on a regular basis. Yeah. Wow. That sounds super exciting, man. I, I like the, what a, what a great opportunity to like to, to be able to do that and kind of like do what you were doing when you, when you were first coming up again. Yeah. It's, it, it is kind of a blast from the past and uh, it's, it's a lot more fun. And, you know, here in Philly, it's just a lot of these clubs are walking distance from my apartment. You know, I don't have to take a train from Manhattan to Ridgewood on a Tuesday yeah, and, right. you know, try to, and so, it, you know, Ubers are cheap here, you know, taking the train is easy enough. So yeah. it's just a more manageable city to, to get around and it's not as big and, as I said, there's less places to, to see music. So you kind of are going to a lot of the same spots and meeting the same people. And yeah. you're able to kind of build those relationships quicker than I was in New York City. Okay. Uh, you're never in town. You got to take you out. Oh, totally, man. Totally. I'll hit you up. When's Brooklyn Bowl coming to Chicago? Uh, I know Pete, you know, has a lot of love for Chicago. <laughs> he does fairly well there. Uh, I know that was on the table, kind of like sort of, kind of, sort of at one point. Yep. You know, there's, there's a lot of different opportunities that come uh, to Brooklyn Bowl and a lot of different markets that, you know, uh, are making the case to open one there. And I know that they've been pretty selective about it, but Pete has a lot of love for Chicago. And I'm sure that something is cooking in some capacity, whether it's a Brooklyn Bowl or, or something else. <laughs> Good diplomatic answer, brother. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for being here, Paul. This was just absolutely awesome to, to chat with you and learn more about what you're doing, man. It's so fucking impressive, man. And, um, you know, you're bringing amazing acts to these incredible venues, really. I appreciate that, man. It's really great to be on. And, uh, you know, I, I, when I was coming up in the industry, I listened to Promoter 101 uh, pretty religiously to try to hear other people's stories about where they came from and, and try to learn some lessons about uh, best practices and things that I need to be doing um, to achieve similar success as some of the people that I listened to on there. And I think it's great that, uh, you know, now that Promoter 101 is not 
recording as much or uh, as consistently that, you know, there's another uh, industry podcast that can, you know, impart some wisdom to, to you know, people who might want to learn more about how the booking side works, how the agency side works, or uh, manager, tour manager, uh, artist. And I think it's really important that uh, people have a, a place where they can come and, and listen to, you know, how people uh, got their start in the industry yeah. and, and, uh, and how things have changed and continue to work. And I think you're, you're, uh, you're doing some, some good public service, man. Thanks so much, man. Thanks so much. That's really, that's really nice of you to say and really great to hear. Um, and that's what I love. I love live music. I love the people that are in the industry and that's kind of, that's, that's exactly what I want to bring to, to Roadcase. So for, for people out there that are listening and perhaps are just starting out or are, you know, been in the business for a couple of years, they want to do what you're doing. Sort of what's, what's your advice to them and, um, from your perspective right now? I mean, I think you've had people on the show before who've, you know, just said that you got to just get your foot in the door and, you know, it's not as easy to work for free now with, you need to have credit for a college or something. And maybe it's a little more bureaucratic um, than when I could just go walk in and, and start hanging posters and, and hanging around. But yeah. um, if that's an option, just to, to spend some time uh, at the venue, just learning the vocabulary of what a lo- of loading in, of sending offers. Like there, there is a whole different vocabulary that you need to know what, what a hold is, what a challenge is. Yeah. Um, and you don't really get those things without, you know, being around people in the industry. Um, and, you know, I, I asked a lot of random people to get coffee with me back in the day. And mm-hmm. a lot of people said yes, that, you know, I, I we're pretty high up people. And I've, you know, the moment I didn't think anything of it, I was just doing blast out. But now I realized that like, wow, they actually took time out of their day and they have busy days to meet with me for 45 minutes and yeah. you know, tell me what they were doing. So I try to, I try to, uh, you know, pay it forward whenever I can, but I would just definitely suggest that people are, um, proactive and, uh, you know, don't be afraid to ask, you know, someone to, to meet with them for a little bit, um, to hang around, to shadow them for a day where someone can say is no. And, uh, Probably one out of ten will say yes. Right on, right on. Good advice, dude. Good advice, and you followed that advice as you were going along, which is amazing, and got you to where you were, where you are now. Uh, thanks again, Paul, for being on Roadcase, man. It was really, really a great pleasure. Good, good luck to you, and um, all good things, brother. Likewise, Josh. It's great meeting. Thanks, man. Okay, that was me and Paul Batcher. Talking about all things booking at Brooklyn Bowl in Philly and in Williamsburg in Brooklyn was really psyched to have Paul on the show. I think what really struck me about Paul the most is that he comes from such a genuine place of interest and love of live music and reminds me a ton of Pete Shapiro, you know, his his mentor, his boss, the owner of Brooklyn Bowls and the owner of the Capitol Theater up in Port Chester, just outside of New York City. Um and I just love how he loves live music, uh, used to go to so many shows, still does, takes an interest in bands, both more popular and smaller bands, and really wants to bring those into the venues, make the experience the best for the bands. Uh, I know that they make the experience really great for fans at all their venues, because I talked to Pete and I've talked to people that have been to the shows at those venues, and it's just, an, and I have as well, uh, been to the camp. It's just an incredible experience. I love how 
Paul also worked at Ticketmaster, got that background, and I was just so impressed with his uh, how he came up into this industry by just uh, offering his services at different venues for free and then just built up uh, a uh, category of bands that he booked into a variety of different venues and kind of his career just took off from there, you know, and uh, he seems to be very thoughtful about what he does and uh, mentioned how uh, Pete Shapiro talks about trusting your instincts when I asked Paul about the kind of advice that he gets from Pete and what that uh, the spirit of collaboration that Pete Shapiro brings to all of his venues and uh, how Paul implements that as well. Uh, it was just a really nice chat, really great experience to talk to Paul, and I'm really so glad that you're along for that for this ride, and uh, really appreciate everyone who's out there. Uh, and hope you'll come up for different episodes that are coming up in the future. We got a ton more for you, and I want to thank everyone for being here for this episode. And I want to send a special thank you to Paul Batcher for being here on this episode of Road Case. Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at RoadcasePod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. Mm -hmm.